Area 941 podcast are produced and distributed by Community Powered 94.1 KPFA Radio. Please help support Area 941 at kpfa.org. This is the Area 941 Radio Walensky Podcast. I'm Richard Walensky, and we're talking about books, about theater, about film, about television, and from time to time, even about KPFA, Pacifica Radio. My guest is Susan Oxtoby, Senior Film Curator at Pacific Film Archive, Berkeley Art Museum. Uh, Susan Oxtoby right now is curating a film series against authority the cinema of Masaki Kobayashi. Over the past week, I've seen four of his films. Um, I actually joined Criterion Collection. Mm -hmm. I noticed in reading up on him that he was very ethical, very politically active in his films, and it got him into a lot of trouble. So let's go back a little bit. Susan Oxtoby, how long have you been familiar with the films of Kobayashi? Well, you know, I think I first saw The Human Condition about 10 years ago because the Criterion Collection and also their theatrical branch, Janus Films, actually had a new 35-millimeter print. I think it was about 2009. And, you know, The Human Condition, which was uh, released as three a three-part epic and it was released between 1959 and 1961, is Kobayashi's best-known film internationally. And then this series uh, allows us to show uh, the middle part of Kobayashi's career, when most of his big hits were made. But at the same time, the films that we're showing are all 35-millimeter prints. And, you know, I've been programming for more than 25 years, but I haven't really come across a Kobayashi retrospective, uh, or you don't see them that often. You see the films cropping up in samurai series, thematic programs, or, you know, an institution may show The Human Condition, his great epic. Um, but I thought this was a great chance to do a summer series at the MPFA and to focus on Kobayashi. And to show, you know, some of the really exceptional works from the mid part of his career. And I have to say, our institution, which has a, a film archive, actually has two of the films in our own archival collection. Uh, so we really wanted to bring those out and share them with the public. So this is the series that runs through August 18th at Van PFA. And I think it does represent a very rare chance for the uh, Bay Area public to see Kobayashi's films on the big screen. The Human Condition, which is uh, about Japan's brutal exploitation of Manchuria during World War II. This is a fictional work, but it was based on Kobayashi's own experiences. It is a really profound anti-war film. As I was reading up on Kobayashi and seeing the four films I'd seen, which in order were Samurai Rebellion, Harakiri, Kwaidan, and The Inheritance, it almost struck me that he's sort of the genre noir in a weird way of Japan. Does that make sense? In terms of how he deals with people and on some level the empathy that he shows. Yeah, I could see that. Yeah. 
But I also think when I think of humanism, I also think of Ozu as a master director who was very much about the human condition. But I think you're right with Renoir, who also made politically oriented narrative films. There, yeah, there's there's something to that. Yeah. Well, let's go into a little about Kobayashi and we'll talk about the different films. Okay, so he was conscripted into the Japanese army. Just like the main character in Human Condition, he winds up in a POW camp in Okinawa, comes out and gets hired as an assistant director at one of the studios, and it takes him a few years to move up the ranks. And his early films, the very early ones, are just kind of programmers. You know, he actually was involved with Shoshiko Studio before the war for a brief period and had studied philosophy and history at Waseda University. But so the war came up and interrupted his early part of his career. You know, the films that really became his own were the ones that start in about 1956 with I Will Buy You. Most historians and critics really look at where he came into his own as being in the mid-50s with I Will Buy You. Well, I Will Buy You, which can be seen at uh, PFA on August 18th. Let's talk a little about this particular film. What is in the film that says, for the first time, this is a Kobayashi film? His critique of sport and the unethical nature of the sports business. It's a film that's about baseball in Japan, but there's very little of this film that actually is on the ball field. Um, it's more a kind of behind the scenes expose of the sports industry, circa 1956, and sort of an examination of the corruption in it. So I think in that way, it does signal Kobayashi's kind of ongoing theme of critiquing authority and looking at the individual against society, being concerned with social justice. So this is an early example of a a film set in the contemporary moment where he was poking at authority structures. How much freedom did he have to choose his films, to choose his screenplays? Do we know? I don't know, but he made 20 films across his career. And uh, if you include The Human Condition as a single work. And that's not a very high output for Japanese directors in this period. I have to assume that given the character of the works that were showing in the Van Pfe series, that he probably had a good level of control over what it was that he ended up making. And I think that's why I find this series so exciting, because the films that we're showing are particularly beautiful and refined works at, uh, at its mature period. One of the things I noticed is that the early films, including Human Condition, are realistic. And then after that, there's a major shift. Mm -hmm a shift to a concern with aesthetic uh, cinematic formal issues. And by that, what I really mean is a focus on the cinematography. I, I think these films, all of the films that we're showing are shot in the widescreen format of CinemaScope, often known as um, Tohoscope or the various proprietary names for widescreen CinemaScope format. And this also makes it very special to see on the big screen. But he worked with several different cinematographers and I think Kobayashi really had a, a great interest moving from his social critiques into the more kind of aesthetically oriented films that are a strong focus on composition, on editing, on uh, 
landscape shooting and interior scenes. Two of the works that we're showing are period pieces. So a lot of attention to detail in terms of the historical period in, in, in Japanese culture, but also through Japanese art. Like some of the films, including Harakiri, have extraordinary screen paintings in them, you know, beautifully done and, and really displayed well in terms of the use of the camera. I find him a very efficient and elegant stylist in cinema. What one of the critiques I saw about him talked about was that in those later films, starting with Harakiri and continuing through Kwaidan and Samurai Rebellion, though I didn't see too much of it in The Inheritance, mm -hmm. was use of symmetry and also large open indoor spaces. Mm -hmm. I'm glad you made that point because Harakiri, which is from 1962, a lot of people feel it's his best film, including The Human Condition, too. But the opening moments or minutes of that film are exceptional. Uh, just to maybe not to give any spoilers, but within the first four shots, Kobayashi does so much to set the scene for this film, both on a kind of metaphorical level, the first image of this empty armor suit followed by a second image, which is a journal, a handwritten Japanese calligraphy journal, which we hear a voiceover narration, and the narrator sets the scene very kind of succinctly. And then the third shot is our hero, but shot from behind, so we don't see his face. And just the very gentle sound of his stepping on the gravel in the court of this feudal mansion. And then, you know, then the opening credits of the film appear, and within just a couple of more minutes, we've gotten totally oriented to what Harakiri is about in terms of a samurai who finds that he has no work left in this pacifist period in, in I think it was 1630 AD. But it is really fascinating uh, approach. And actually, speaking of the camera movements, the camera in these opening minutes of Harakiri will both dolly in and out of the hallways in, in the feudal mansion, but also move track right and left across beautiful Japanese paintings of the period. What I've noticed in that and in Kwaidan and also in Samurai Rebellion, we see a lot of shots that become almost static, images of people responding, but the, their faces don't move. As soon as you become a little bit tired and saying, why are they doing that? He flips. Mm -hmm. And he's also willing to follow someone down a hallway, around a hallway, around a hallway, around a hallway. And then at the same time, he'll cut from one scene to another, leaving you completely mystified where we're going and who these people are. It's true. He does use ellipses in his narrative structure. The situation of the narrative structure is set so that the edit points represent two different scenes happening back and forth. And this is sometimes the way that he's telling his story. He does seem to like parallel structure in narrative. I also feel that compositionally, if you look at the arc of the narrative across the feature-length film, that he's building up towards you know, the climax in a really skillful way. So that the timing and pacing, and as you said, the uh, almost the sense of stasis is in anticipation of the climax of the narrative. So it's really terrific cinema. Frequently what you'll have is a static shot, but the music and the pounding of drums will get mm -hmm. louder and louder 
And the two things are working simultaneously. Yeah, and at least four of the films that we're showing at BAMPFA, Masaki Kobayashi works with um, Toro Takamitsu, the extraordinary avant-garde Japanese composer, and he also made his made his own films. But in these works, I think that you know it's both the director, cinematographer, and the Takamitsu scores that are working together to really you know do a lot with sound effects with avant-garde music or traditional music in the score. And uh, I think that that relationship is key, the, the music composer-director relationship between Takamitsu and Kobayashi. I read that the lighting is higher. He used different lighting than most other directors. <laughs> I noticed a lot of high-angle shots, too, um, where he's yeah. showing us basically the floor plan of these feudal mansions. So he really is working nicely with perspective and with film architecture in terms of shot composition, but also the use of either architectural form or landscape in the films, and um, great use of close-ups. In all of the films, the characters, their facial movements are almost stylized, and this, this is even in The Inheritance. Mm -hmm. There's one exception to that, which is Mifune in Samurai Rebellion, who is doing Mifune. You know, he was the one of the producers of um, Samurai Rebellion. I was impressed by that. It was a Toho Mifune production. I mean, he's such a great actor. We've done many series in tribute to Toshiro Mifune, but but uh, he's. I mean, when he's working with Kurosawa, he's you know scratching and itching, and he has a lot of shtick in his acting. Can you talk a little bit about the political elements of Harakiri and Samurai Rebellion? The political subtext in Harakiri by Kobayashi, you know, in some ways it's as simple as this is a samurai film that's an anti-samurai film. Through the honor code whereby this, the samurai might come to a point in his career where he needs to commit Harakiri, the whole context for this film deals with a peaceful period in Japan's history, 1630, but where a court is confronted by two samurai who enter the mansion, ask for the Lord's permission to commit harakiri in the court. This film by Kobayashi is questioning the, the code of the samurai and tradition. Nakadai, at one point, that's the actor playing um, the samurai, does say that Bushido, the way of the samurai, is kind of fake. The companion piece to that would, I guess, be Samurai Rebellion. It's a film that's set a bit later in, in 1725, but it does still deal with feudal Japan. And it's a situation where there's a, a kind of a, a reason for a, a woman who's the mistress of a lord to be then forced to marry uh, a samurai's son. And at the same time, it turns into a love story. Then when the court requests this Ichi, the former mistress, come back to the original Lord's Court, there's this tension because uh, a relationship has developed and it's a memoir of love. So in some ways, this is an interesting film because it's the female character that's sort of propelling the plot tension. And it's also in terms of the, the samurai who's played by Mifune uh, in a wonderful role. And he is our hero in the film. He's stated that he's retired and he's passing the family decision-making process over to his son, who has fallen in love with Ichi, the lead actress. At the same time, it, it, it turns into this 
fighting against this injustice where the couple that is now in love, the Lord is trying to separate them. And, and so it's this complex social situation. It's a critique of society. And it is also this following the lives of the more average characters and following true love. So it, it's a very interesting uh, relationship film at the same time as it being this pacifist samurai who's then forced to take a position. You mentioned the role of women in the film. Going back to The Inheritance, that one is the only one of these films which is taken completely or almost completely from a woman's perspective. Mm -hmm. Was that unusual for Japanese films or not? No, I wouldn't say so. Let's see, The Inheritance is 1962, and it would be at the same time when directors like Mikio Naruse were making great films. In the case of Naruse, he was completely focused on presenting his narratives from the perspective of women, okay. as often was the case for Mizuguchi, Kenji Mizuguchi. I think it's partly the male-dominated society, but the filmmakers often would, you know, like many of the great filmmakers in world cinema, would look to the women's part and try and show that perspective. The other part about the inheritance is that when you strip it down, there's almost Hitchcock <laughs> plot to it, which mm -hmm. is kind of unexpected in a film like that. Yeah, so The Inheritance, 1962, um, made at Shochiku, the uh, studio. It is urban. I think it's shot in Tokyo. You know, it all hinges on uh, a critique of greed. I mean, it's the inheritance, this aging man who has three illegitimate children and his decisions about how he's leaving his wealth. It's quite a contemporary. It's, a, yeah, an interesting film. Well, it also has something else. Kobayashi was not afraid to show violence. And there's a rape scene in that one, mm -hmm. just as in Harakiri, the scene of the first seppuku, the first Harakiri, mm -hmm. is pretty overwhelming. I agree. Yeah, I totally agree. But you know what? You feel that you're in the hands of a director who is using, in this case, Harakiri carefully so that the shots, what happens, yes, it's, it is hard to watch, but at the same time, you feel that it's, it's not gratuitous. It's central to the work. Kwaidan is somewhat different from these. Yeah. Susan Oxtaby. What we have are four stories, or really three stories and an incomplete bit which are taken from the writings of a kind of obscure man named Lafcadio Hearn. It's a color film. It's completely different in many ways from anything else he's done. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's true. He spent about a decade on the lead up to this film, and then it took about a year to shoot, and it had a huge budget. Quadon, there's several different length versions, but the version that we show is the international release at 161 minutes. I, I don't have a lot of background about how he came to, to adapt these particular folklore stories, but I think his his concern with dealing with demons and myth and this very stylized use of cinema, which includes a lot of hand-painted sets, is uh, really distinctive. It looks like he was really trying to do a lot of things that he hadn't yet done. I think he was preparing for this project while making the films we've just been speaking about, you know, the film did pick up a special jury prize at Cannes and has actually, I think, been shown a fair bit here in, in the States over the, the years. 
This I would need to do more research on, but I feel that Kurosawa's dreams, which he made towards the end of his career, I think mid-80s, and Kodan, which is mid-60s for Kobayashi, they, I, I'm curious to know if there's a relationship between them, if, if, if the Kobayashi film had an influence on the Kurosawa film. But they are an expressive uh, use of imaginary world. Given that Kobayashi was taking this turn towards the aesthetic, I think that, you know, whatever inspired him to make this quartet of ghost stories, I'm sure distills down to some of the core themes and interests around Japanese society and culture. His career continued on. He lived uh, to the mid-90s. So this is is a key work in the most uh, critical part of his career. Well, one thing I noticed about the three non-contemporary films each shot is beautiful. I mean, in a weird way, it reminded me of something like Barry Lyndon, mm. where you're looking at paintings, particularly yeah. quite done, but all of them. Well, remember that Kobayashi studied philosophy and painting in university. I agree. There's a beautiful aesthetic sense in the films that we're showing. And his relationship with his cinematographer and with the whole production team with Kwaidan, they were. They, I read that they had two studios that they were working in. While while they were painting sets in one, they were filming in the other. You know, Kobayashi clearly was working with an avant-garde composer, with very accomplished set designers and and production managers. And this this is a very elaborate production. Susan Oxtoby, we today, when we think of Japanese cinema of the era, we think of Ozu, mm -hmm. we think of Kurosawa. Mm -hmm. On some level, we should also be thinking about Kobayashi. I think this is really important for Bay Area audiences to see a Kobayashi series. I mean, I think if we search back over our own programming history, which is now nearly 50 years of programming, um, we've shown Kobayashi films. I don't know that we've done a series, per se. As I have referred to, they come up in different contexts. I think, um, you know, to look at the wonderful Japanese film historian Donald Ritchie, he completely thinks that Kobayashi is a, a major figure, and particularly this mid-period part of the career. For me, even, this, this happens frequently, but I really look forward to having a chance to see these films together as a set and to think more about the relationships from film to film and to hear what the audience response is and to give them you know, the time and investment that uh, one likes to give to uh, retrospectives so that you really can um, understand a career more. He seems to me to have almost a Hitchcockian mastery. The films are very carefully made like Hitchcock. There's a great sense of suspense in them, I think, partly through the sparse quality, sometimes the slightly minimalist approach, but they do deal beautifully with time. Hitchcock was a master of time, and I think Kobayashi, same could be said. And I, I really think that it's, it, it's going to be exciting to, to see these back-to-back -back on the big screen. But you've seen quite all on the big screen. Yeah. And I've seen it on a 50-inch, which isn't bad. <laughs> but when you're seeing something on a big screen like that, for you, Susan Oxtoby, what's the difference? Well, partly it's that we're watching a film with an audience. That's one of the things I love about BAMPFA and film viewing in general, wherever I am, is that this shared experience, but also one's attention is directed, you know, no distractions. And there's the 
wonderful sound fidelity in, in, in the Bampiafe Theater, but at the same time, you know, the scale is important. It's important to see things. These All of these films are cinemascope format, as we've said, but to see them in all of their detail and also with the sounds that come from the audience, too, I think. Really? Yeah. I mean, uh, yeah, sure, there are funny moments, there are beautiful moments, but I think it's also the sense of the attention given to seeing the film in a theater. is Because I catch myself all the time if I'm watching something and trying to multitask while doing it. You know, you're not giving the same level of attention, perhaps, if you're going to a film theater and, and seeing something projected with a full audience. Susan Oxtoby, some films we can't find or they're very, very rare. In your time in Toronto and here, you must have seen a couple of them that the rest of us have not. And I just came back from the Bologna Film Festival, Il Cinema Retrovato, which happens at the end of June every year. There was a beautiful film that I saw um, directed by the Swedish filmmaker Moritz Stiller and just restored by the Swedish Film Archive. When films are restored well by knowledgeable film historians and archivists and then brought back to life, there is so much about film history that we continue to discover. So to answer your question, maybe in a more broad way, I, I think part of what is so exciting about the work of film curation is that there's so much activity in the field today. The interconnected nature between the world's film archives and the number of important restorations that are being done. It is extraordinary. And in any given year, there is there are new restorations of films that are reaching the public. And so this could be from parts of the world where it's very difficult to have the support for archives in poorer countries in the world. But the relationships that are happening through um, the collegial nature of archival film practice is, is exciting. And I find I gain great inspiration from that. Part of it is that, yes, I'm often learning about and seeing works that we will at some future point bring to the Bay Area and show at Bam PFA. And that includes from all these other festivals. I'm often showing films that I love, that I've shown many times in my career, but at the same time in any year, there are many films that we're showing to the public that haven't been available in exhibition copies or in good restorations. Um, so there's there's a lot to do, and it's it's always great to have a receptive public for the films that we screen. Susan Oxaby, now you've programmed this. What is the next uh, retrospective you personally are programming? Oh, well, we're just finalizing our fall season, which actually there is one big series in the fall season, the Iranian filmmaker Abbas Kiristami. The series begins on August 2nd in our summer season and will run for five months. So that's been a major undertaking. Um, we're really grateful that a lot of digital restorations have been completed and that uh, we're able to showcase a number of special guests with the Abbas Kiristami series, um, including his son, Ahmed Kiristami, who actually lives here in the Bay Area. You've been listening to an interview with Susan Oxtaby, who is the curator of uh, Against Authority, the cinema of Masaki Kobayashi, also senior film curator at Pacific Film Archive. For more information about this particular film series and other series, you can go to their website, 
BAMPFA.org. And specifically for this film series, go to search, type in Kobayashi, and you'll find the list. It's uh, running mostly Wednesdays in uh, July and August, though the last two are on a Thursday and a Saturday. Feedback on this and other Radio Walensky podcasts is appreciated. You can write to bookwaves at hotmail.com. You can listen to other interviews either as Radio Walensky podcasts or in the archives pages of bookwaves.com. Until next time, I'm Richard Walensky on the Area 941 Radio Walensky podcast. <laughs>